Last week, we began to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And I mentioned at that time that Donald Gray Barnhouse, the longtime pastor in the last century of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, as long as John Piper, who's known in our day, the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, former pastor uh, there in Minneapolis, called this paragraph, Romans 3, 21 through 26, the most important paragraph in the Bible. And I also mentioned that Leon Morris, who is one of the most renowned New Testament scholars of the 20th century from Australia, has called it possibly the most important paragraph that's ever been written. And I also said that through my own years of study and ministry, I've come to agree with them. And I hope as we continue our study of this paragraph today that before we're done, you also will hold that estimation. Uh, Last week as we began to look at this amazing paragraph, we zeroed in on verses 21 through 24 where Paul explains that the righteousness that God requires of us, He provides for us so that we are able to be reconciled to Him Because that which we owe him has been paid to him, not by us, but he himself has paid it through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has provided redemption for us in his son. Today we want to zero in on verses 25 and 26 of this paragraph to see exactly how this redemption has been secured. What did Jesus actually do to accomplish it? And what did he accomplish on the cross, not just for us, but what did he accomplish for God? So if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, you'll find this passage on page 941. I want to encourage you to get a copy of this text in front of your eyes. I want you to see it and follow along as I read it, because we want to meditate on it together. I want to point out the argument that the Apostle Paul is making here that has captured the minds of so many students of God's Word throughout history. And it's led those that I mentioned earlier to say, this is the most important paragraph in the Bible. So hear the word of the Lord as I begin reading again in verse 21 of Romans 3. The apostle writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As we saw last week, Paul begins his explanation here showing us that God has done something for sinners that enables sinners to be declared righteous in in him. 
We don't have anything to bring to the table with God. Nothing we are, nothing we can do, we can hold up to God that would cause Him to accept us. God requires righteousness. We have no righteousness. And that is our dilemma. And if you remain unreconciled to God today, that is a dilemma that continues on with you at this very present moment. In verses 21 and 22, Paul announces that the good news is there is righteousness available for sinners. It's a righteousness that doesn't come, cannot come through anything that we do in trying to keep God's law. But rather, it is, as he calls it, the righteousness of God. The righteousness that God requires, Paul says, that we do not have, God himself manifests. This is what he means by the righteousness of God in those two verses, 21 and 22. There is payment for sin. There's a fulfillment of everything that God requires. And that payment, that fulfillment has been provided for everyone who believes. Those who have faith in Christ. You see it in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And then in verse 24, Paul announces the way that God has done this. The method whereby he has secured righteousness for sinners and a right standing for believers. Believers, he said, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the question is, how can God who is righteous, forgive and accept to himself sinners that are unrighteous in themselves? That's the question. And if you were to put that question to the Apostle Paul, you would hear him answer it the way that he's written it here through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's how sinners become acceptable to God. In verses 25 and 26, Paul explains what he means by this redemption in Christ Jesus. And, and his original readers would have perhaps been in a better position to understand this word redemption than we are today. It's a metaphor that was commonly used in the Old Testament as well as in ancient Greek literature. Basically, it's a word that simply means to, to buy back through the payment of a price. So in ancient times, when kingdoms would go to war against each other and the one who won the war would take prisoners of war, there would be some opportunity very often to buy back those prisoners of war, usually through gold or silver. We also have records of slaves being afforded opportunity to buy their freedom at a price if they could come up with that ransom. And Paul here is using this word to describe the salvation that we have from God. What he has in mind is what God has done for us to rescue us. God has ransomed us out of the spiritual condition and bondage that we have because of sin. He's redeemed us. He has purchased us. And the way that he's done it is explained in verses 25 and 26. 
In these two verses, we learn that the death of Jesus demonstrates that God justifies sinners justly. What He does in bringing us to Himself, He does without compromising His holiness, compromising His justice in any degree. So in order to consider these two verses and seek to understand the way Paul makes this case, I want to ask three questions that these verses answer. First, we want to ask, what has God done to accomplish our redemption? What has He done so that we are redeemed? The answer is given to us in the opening words of verse 25. Speaking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. What has God done? He put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation. Now, that word propitiation just jumps out at us. It's a word that can be intimidating. It's a word you probably haven't used in the last week. It's not part of our common vocabulary. But we must not allow ourselves to be intimidated by this word. Uh, This word has fallen out of fashion with many modern interpreters such that it's not unusual to find modern translations of the Scripture where this word's translated or it's rendered a little differently like a sacrifice of atonement or expiation or some other word rather than the stark word propitiation. It simply means to appease, to placate, to turn away wrath that is hanging over the object that deserves it. The Puritan theologian John Owen emphasizes that there are four elements that are involved in propitiation. And if we're not understanding those four elements, we'll we'll not appreciate the nature of propitiation. The first is that there is an offense to be removed. There is an offense. And what is that offense that needs to be removed? It's our sin. It's our sin. The second is that there is an offended person that needs to be placated, needs to be appeased. Well, who is that person? It's God, because we have sinned against Him. And the third element is the the one who has done the offending, the offending party. Well, who's that? It's us. Because our sin really is an offense to God. And it's true of every person in this room. It's true of all people by nature. We are the offending party. And the fourth element is a sacrifice to make atonement for the offense. To pay for it. And what is that? That's Jesus Christ in His death on the cross. If we keep these four elements clear in our thinking, then we will appreciate what Paul is arguing for here. Propitiation recognizes the reality of God's wrath. And brothers and sisters, we just simply need to come to terms with the reality we live in today that people do not want to hear about God's wrath And there are many who name the name of Jesus who no longer believe in God's wrath. But the Bible consistently teaches it. 
There are over 20 different words used in the Old Testament for wrath. There are over 600 references to God's wrath in the Old Testament. And yet, do you know who the most prolific teacher of God's wrath in all the Bible is? It's not Moses. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Every time Jesus teaches on the reality of hell, what he is teaching is God has wrath that will be poured out eternally on those who are consigned to hell. And he issues warnings about the coming wrath of God. Like in John 3, 36, where he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you believe Jesus? That whoever's not obeying the Son right now, whoever's not living in submission to Christ as Lord right now, has the wrath of God abiding on him? Well, if you believe Jesus, then what Paul is writing to us here in our text is of vital importance. Because he's telling us how that wrath has been diverted. He's telling us how sinners can escape the wrath of God. The doctrine of wrath, God's wrath, is prominent in Paul's argument in Romans. We've already seen it. Remember in Romans chapter 1, in verses 16, Paul, in 17, Paul announces the theme of the letter. The gospel of God's grace that is received through faith. The gospel that is the power of God to save all who believe. And then having announced the gospel, what's the very first thing that he begins to teach? He begins to teach the wrath of God against sin. You see, the good news doesn't make any sense. It's not good news unless you understand the bad news. And so Paul writes this in Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right now, the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness of people. And then in chapter 2 of Romans, verses 5, 6, and 7, and 8, he talks about a day of wrath coming. Listen to this, or look at it. And in the passage, he says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath, fury. See, Paul's argument in our text makes no sense if you have somehow just downplayed the wrath of God. If you've convinced yourself in a way that quiets your conscience that God would never do that. That God doesn't have wrath. And yet the scripture says that all of us because of sin are by nature under God's wrath. Listen to what Paul says about that in Ephesians chapter 2. 
when he's reminding Christians of what our condition was before God saved us. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. And then in Colossians 3, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. These are sins. Why should we treat sin as such a big deal? Paul says, because it's on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Our God is a God of wrath. Now, his wrath isn't like our wrath. You're at a four-way stop sign and you got there first. Somebody else pulls out in front of you. You, know, you just get this sense of indignation and you want to teach them how to drive and all these things come to your mind, right? It's not like that with God. It's not some passion that erupts in him. It is his settled opposition against all that is evil. It is just his nature to be opposed to that which is contrary to his own character, his own standard, his righteousness that's revealed in his commandments. Paul is making the case that Jesus became a propitiation for us in order to save us from God's wrath. This is what he teaches elsewhere. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. It's what he's going to write in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 as well. When he says, God shows his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, how has Jesus done this? How has Christ propitiated God. Our text goes on in verse 25 to say, He's done this by His blood. By His blood. This is shorthand for Paul. It's shorthand to refer to the cross work of Jesus. And by speaking of blood, he's identifying the work of Jesus on the cross with the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was a bloody system. Those sacrifices that God ordained His people in the Old Covenant to keep and provide day after day, morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices, week after week, season after season, year after year. All those sacrifices were designed to communicate one great truth. That without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And that we need a sacrifice. We need something, someone, somehow to pay for our sin. And it's going to cost blood. The New Testament repeatedly teaches this. When Paul was speaking to the elders of Ephesus, when he called them to Miletus... And it's recorded to, for us in Acts chapter 20. 
In verse 28, he looks at those elders of this church that he loved and gave three years of his life to. Elders that he himself most likely appointed. And he says, you shepherd the church of God. Which he purchased by his own blood. He redeemed the church at the cost of the blood of Christ. In Revelation 1.5, John says Jesus is the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by His own blood. Jesus became a propitiation for us by laying down His life on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. So here's the portrait that the Apostle Paul is drawing for us. Our sin has separated us from God. And in the language of Psalm number 7, God is angry with the wicked every day. And the psalmist there draws a picture. He says he has wet his sword. He says he has drawn his bow and the arrow of his wrath is pointed at all of those who are in sin. And unless they repent, it will be released. And his wrath will be poured out on sinners. And Paul says, here's the good news. God sent his son Jesus into the world. To come and take the place of his people. Before the wrath of God. So that when God unleashes his wrath against our sin. Jesus fully absorbs it. He carries it away. So that in Christ, we're free. We're forgiven. Our sins are paid for by Him. That's what Paul means by propitiation. It is how God's wrath is diverted from us who deserve it. Because it has been absorbed by His Son, the Lord Jesus. And don't fail to note that this all happens by God's express design. You see, it says God put him forward. God's the one who set him forth. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a mistake. The death of Jesus was not the result of circumstances that just spun out of control. And neither was there any disagreement between the Father and the Son. Don't ever get in your mind that the Son is love and kindness and mercy and the Father is somehow angry and wrathful. No. It's the Father that sent His Son to the cross. We don't placate God as some kind of angry deity by doing things. We look at God as He is. He's been revealed to us in the Bible and we see what He has done in order to avert His wrath from us that we deserve so that we might be reconciled to Him. God is the one who put Christ forward. He planned and orchestrated the whole event of Jesus' death. Sometimes people will ask, you know, where was God? In this trial, this tragedy, where's God? I get it, that's a right question to ask. But we must answer it according to the Scripture. Where was God at the death of His Son? Listen to Isaiah 53 as that 
prophet gives answer to the question. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs, he says, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Brothers and sisters, you are trusting Christ. We must remember that our salvation has been purchased at a great cost. God gave up His own Son. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that has secured our peace with God. And because that is true, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And because you're in Christ, because you're trusting Him, because He is your Lord, you can be sure that this glorious God, who is so pure, so holy, He can't even look upon sin with any approval whatsoever, any toleration of it whatsoever. This God has been reconciled to you, a sinner, on the basis of what His Son did on the cross. So we see what God did to secure our redemption. He put forward Jesus to be our propitiation. The second question is, why? Why did God do this? When we think about the cross and ask why, typically we say because God determined to save us. It's for our salvation, that's true. But that's not what's foremost in Paul's mind here. Look at the answer to that question that he gives. Why did God do this? He did it to show his own righteousness you see it verse 25 repeats it in verse 26 he is saying that the propitiatory sacrificial death of Jesus demonstrate demonstrates God's righteousness and in verse 25 he focuses on how it demonstrates God's righteousness in relationship to the past how by proving that he was righteous and showing grace and mercy to sinners during the Old Testament era, he said he had what Paul calls divine forbearance, divine forbearance. That's the exercise of patience in the face of provocation. Divine forbearance is God's long suffering demonstrated toward those who rebel against him. When Paul preached and his missionary journeys as recorded in Acts, we have two occasions, one in chapter 14, one in chapter 17, where he refers to this characteristic of God. In Acts 14, a crowd gathered around him in Lystra. And so he began to unpack how God had dealt with his creation up to this point in his history. He said, in past generations, the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. What is that? Divine forbearance. It's patience in the face of provocation. And when Paul was addressing the Athenian philosophers at Mars Hill, in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, he said to them, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Divine forbearance. But now, 
He commands all men everywhere to repent. Paul is saying that the Old Testament era, indeed, in one sense, all of human history is a testimony to God's forbearance. You know, I've often marveled why the Bible doesn't end at Genesis 3. God created everything. It was good. It's right. Glorious. Adam sinned. I'm thinking, you know, if this were me, that would be the end of it. There wouldn't be a Genesis 4. History would be pretty sharp. And yet, God has divine forbearance. He suffers long. He's patient, even in the face of provocation. What Paul is getting at here is the fact that in one sense, the whole Old Testament, the record of what God did in God's people in that Old Covenant era, leaves a big question mark over the righteousness of God. You stop and think about it. You say, well, how could this God who is holy, who promises judgment, death, to all who are unholy, all who sin, how could he receive people who sin against him to himself? Why isn't everybody that we read about in the Old Testament in hell? Yet we know God didn't send everybody in the Old Testament to hell. Paul says, no. In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Do you see that phrase? He passed over them. This is a specific reference to how God, who gave up his son on the cross, dealt with these Old Testament saints. And what this means is that the way God dealt with them was in a sense different than how he deals with them now, how he deals with us now. Because it's not like they were sinless. And it's not like they were sinners who had their sin already paid for. Rather, he passed over them. And so, to the degree that they had and experienced forgiveness, it was based upon something that was still yet to come. He's saying God didn't visit them with the wrath that their sins deserve. He suspended his judgment against them for a time. Such forbearance and passing over sin could look like God's perfect justice and righteousness had been compromised. Maybe God really isn't just. Or isn't all that strict in his justice and righteousness. Maybe he doesn't always do what he says he will do. You think about it. How could God not send Adam to hell? On what basis did God accept Jacob and not Jezebel? We understand how he could send Pharaoh to hell. Why didn't he send Moses to hell? Didn't Moses sin? Pharaoh's paying for his sin. What about Moses' sin? Who's paying for that? Doesn't this make God unjust? Do you see the question mark? How did God do that? It's only by the death of Jesus 
that God's personal righteousness is vindicated with regard to how he dealt with his Old Testament saints. It's as if all of the sins of his Old Testament saints were put in escrow to be dealt with at a later date. He passed over them. And then, at the appropriate time, by sending his son to live a life of obedience to his commandments and laying down his life as a sacrifice and substitute on the cross, Jesus settled those accounts. He emptied the escrow. See, Abraham's sins were put in escrow until Jesus came. And when Jesus came and laid down his life on the cross, God took Abraham's sin and he placed it on his son. And he poured out his wrath against Abraham's sin in Jesus. He poured out his wrath against David's sin in Jesus. Against Adam's sin in Jesus. Against Jacob's sin in Jesus. Moses' sin in Jesus. All of his saints in the Old Testament were saved by the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what Paul is teaching us here. In doing this, God's demonstrating his righteousness. He's erasing the question mark. The soul that sins must surely die. And I've taken these sins that I passed over for a while and I have now put them on my son and I have fully, fully poured out my wrath against him. He has atoned for them in his death. This demonstrates God's righteousness. People often confuse God's forbearance today with indulgence. They think that because God doesn't exact, immediate, complete judgment against sin, that he really must not be bothered that much by it. This is why many people find it so easy to go on in sin, even though they know that how they're thinking, how they're living is wrong before God. Well, he hasn't killed me yet. I mean, look at all the blessings I have. You know, I've been doing okay so far. God must not be too concerned. Such thinking is so wrong. And it's dangerous. And it reveals a superficial understanding of what the Bible teaches us about God. God didn't require or regard Abraham's sin as insignificant. He stored them up. He waited until the appointed time, until his son came into the world. And then he put those sins on Jesus and executed Abraham's sins in Jesus on the cross. The cross demonstrates that God always keeps his word. Sin must be paid for. The sins of the Old Testament saints, whom God did not send to hell, were once and for all paid for on the cross. Paul's already addressed this issue of how we so quickly confuse God's forbearance with indulgence. Look back at chapter 2, verse 5. You see how he words it here? Verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? There's that word, forbearance and patience. Not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You had not killed me yet. Look at the blessings I have. Maybe God's not that concerned with how I'm living in sin against Him. Paul says, don't you see? Yes, God's been good to you. He's been kind to you. He's been forbearing with you. Not to indulge you in your sin, but to call you to repent. How can you go on living in rebellion against this God who's been so good to you? Paul says, there's only one explanation. It's through your impenitence and hardness of heart. Oh, friend. If you know you're a sinner, you know God has told you the wages of sin is death, and yet you are satisfied to go on in your sin, consider how the Apostle Paul helps you to think rightly about yourself. Don't go another moment. Don't take another breath without crying out to God from your heart to be reconciled to Him, to have mercy upon you, acknowledge that yes, He's been good to you, and you have been misunderstanding His goodness as indulgence. And confess your sin and trust Jesus Christ today and be reconciled to your Creator. He will accept you. He sent His Son into the world for people like you. If you'll have Christ as your Lord and Savior, He will have you as His disciple. So the cross displays God's righteousness with regard to the past. But Paul goes on to say, in verse 26, it also shows God's righteousness with regard to the present. You see this? It was to show His righteousness at the present time. So the cross proves that God remains righteous in showing grace and mercy to sinners now and forevermore. The death of Jesus proves that God is a just justifier. He says that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. To be justified is to be forgiven. It's to be declared righteous in God's courtroom. It's to be acquitted of your crimes against him. So Paul says, God justifies us. That is, he forgives. He declares us righteous. He acquits us of our crimes against him. And he does so in a way without violating his own standard of righteousness. Which sometimes we as parents don't do. Johnny, don't you talk back to your mom again. If you do, I'm not going to let you have dessert. If you don't pick up your toys, then I'm going to have to discipline you. And he talks back to mom and he doesn't pick up the toys and we think, you know, it's been a hard week. and He's tired. He hadn't had a nap. and So, you know, okay, give him the dessert. And you pick up the toys. And, and you might think, well, I'm just being merciful. Well, and, and you can make a case for that. There's an element of that in there. But do you see what your mercy cost you? Your mercy cost you your integrity, your honesty, your righteousness. Because you said you were going to do, and you didn't. God never shows mercy like that. 
He never gives mercy and forgiveness at the expense of His righteousness. Rather, He takes our sin and punishes our sin, pouring out His wrath on our sin in Christ on the cross. Our forgiveness is a costly thing. It's costly. It cost Jesus Christ His life. It cost God His only begotten Son. God doesn't forgive simply by making a declaration. He doesn't show mercy at this expense of His justice. It's not an easy thing for God to forgive a sinner. Because He's God, He must always remain true to Himself and He cannot violate His own standard of justice. Think about it. What would you think of a judge over here in Lee County in the court system who always had criminals come before him with cases that are ironclad against them and says, not guilty. Not guilty. Day after day, every criminal before him, not guilty, lets them go. What would you think of a judge like that? He's not just. He's a shyster. He's a crook. There's something going wrong here. This is a miscarriage of justice. That charge can never be made against our God. Because Every sin will be paid for. Either by those who have committed the sin and in their hardness of heart have refused to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and thus are consigned to eternity paying for their sin or those who have repented of sin and looked to Christ and find that their sins have been paid for in Him. But the mercy God shows will be a just mercy. So what did God do to secure our redemption? He put forward Jesus to be our propitiation, to take away God's wrath from us. Why did He do it? He did it to vindicate His own righteousness. So the final question I want to ask of our text is this. Who benefits from this work of redemption and propitiation? Who benefits? Everybody? No. No. Only believers. Only those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25. It's to be received by faith. Verse 26. This is for the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification is accomplished by Jesus Christ, but it is received by us through faith. As verse 22 says, God grants righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So for whom is Jesus Christ a propitiation? For whose sins did he actually atone? Who will escape wrath because of the death of Jesus? It's the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? If you do, take God at his word and rejoice that your sins are forgiven. If you don't, then what are you going to do? What are you going to do about your sin? You may have lived your whole life indifferent to this reality, but the reality is that the righteous God who created you has wrath for those who will not turn from sin and be reconciled to Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, again, I would implore you to come to Christ before it's too late. As Paul said, don't keep storing up wrath for yourself 
against the day of wrath because when Jesus appears, then it will be too late. Brothers and sisters, we need to see what the substitutionary, propitiatory, sacrificial death of Jesus means for us. We're free. We stand before God accepted. God looks at Christ and then accepts us for His sake. So live as free people. Hate your sin. Fight against the sin that remains in you. But recognize because of Jesus Christ, every last one of your sins has been propitiated before God. He has taken the account and rendered it clean because of what Jesus has done. When we consider this incredible truth of what Christ accomplished on the cross for us, we should, we should stop and think, if God has done that for us, is there anything that He cannot do? We look at our lives, we see these challenges, and we think, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, I don't know what this is going to do, how, how I'll survive. Paul's going to elaborate this point later in the letter, but let me encourage you right now to begin to think about it. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Is there any good thing that God, the God who gave up His Son for you, will withhold from you? What good things do you need? What good things do you long for? Carry them to your God through faith in Jesus Christ with confidence that He can do it. If it's good for you, if it's what is right for you according to His wisdom and goodness, you will have it. He's not going to withhold it. Do you need comfort? Then ask God to comfort you. Need wisdom? Ask God to give you wisdom. You need grace? Humility? You need the strength to forgive? Look to God. He will grant to you that which is right and good for you because He is your God and Father through Jesus Christ who shed His blood for every one of your sins. We ought to be the most hope-filled, joy-filled people in the world because we have a Savior who has reconciled us to our Creator. So often when we think about the death of Jesus, all that comes to our mind is the love of God. Surely the cross displays the love of God. Scripture is filled with teaching about this. In 1 John 4.10, John writes, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and He gave His Son to be a propitiation for our sin. And so we should, yes, look at the cross and see God's great love for us. But Paul here reminds us that we should look at the cross and see that it also displays God's righteousness. A public vindication of His character. And the good news is, in God's vindication is found our salvation. So rejoice in your Savior. Give praise to your God. Stand in wonder before Him. And call upon the world to behold your God. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we thank You for such a great salvation. We thank You that You've not left us in our sin, but You've sent Your Son. And in Christ, we have been redeemed. We have been reconciled. You have been propitiated. Our sins have been paid for. And we're free. Have mercy on those who have yet to taste to see that you're good. And call them to Christ. Draw them to Christ today. For we pray in his name. Amen.